Welcome to Skeptics, the show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech, news and research. I'm Josh. And I'm Niana. And this week we're joined by two very special guests. Uh, we have Felix Simon from the Oxford Internet Institute and we have Kirsten Eddy from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Uh, we're really excited to have guests on the show. As listeners know, we've tried to have a few more guests on this season and it's been really good to learn about new things. And this time is also our first non-OII guest. So welcome, Kirsten. We're especially excited to have you. And uh, Felix and Kirsten are here today to talk to us about the future of mis- and disinformation studies, which is a very promising title. Uh, Felix and Kirsten, (laughs) can you tell us a little bit more about your adventures into this um, field? (laughs) Sure. I mean, first of all, uh, thanks for having us on the show. Mm. Yeah. Your return guest, Felix. Mm. Our first returning guest. Yes. I was going to say, this is my first time after the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Good to have you back. Thanks for, thanks for welcoming us. Um, should I say a couple of words on... Yeah, please. Okay, so um, I think in a nutshell, mis- and disinformation studies has done a lot of good, but it also has a lot of problems. Um, and I think both Kiss and I um, are probably counted among the people who sort of fall into the critical misinformation studies community uh, where we look at these problems and try to suggest ways that help to put this... NASA and field of research onto sound footing mm-hmm. and ultimately improve this field of studies for the benefit of both research and society. I agree. And, and I think that one of the things that we really want to begin to engage with as a community when we think about disinformation research more broadly it is, is kind of um, accounting for some of the, the flaws and the limitations that mm-hmm. exist in, in what we understand about it currently and really understanding the fact that we don't actually understand very much about it in general. Um, and so uh, in some ways, this is it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity, I think, for for this field of research to do a lot of good and, and really expand. Yeah. yeah. Well, regular skeptics users, uh, listeners, not listeners <laughs> already uh, have a bit of a feel for disinformation after our last guest, Maggie. But just to get the basic definition of question out of the way, use both terms, use them interchangeably, or do you mean something different by each each term? Um, I prefer to use use them in separate ways, where for me, sort of disinformation is the broader overall category and basically means information that is false or misleading in some way. Right. And within that, disinformation more specifically talks about this kind of information that is put out in a targeted mm-hmm. way and with the intention to harm. So misinformation basically false or misleading, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the person creating it or sharing it actually means harm. Whereas with disinformation, the way I think it's been defined, it actually suggests that some actor, could be state, could be an individual, mm-hmm. has the intention of causing some harm of some sort. That's the way I would use it. I'm not sure if you have a different definition. I completely agree. I think that intent really is, is sort of where I, where I distinguish between the two concepts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll bite. I guess the big question that you kind of dropped to us is that you mentioned that you think the field has a lot of flaws in it, a lot of limitations. You're critical, perhaps, of some of the you know, of the, the field that, as it stands right now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those um, issues you have are and what the kind of limitations are that you are gesturing to? Do you yes. want to start? I'd love to. Yes. Uh, <laughs> how long do we have? Uh, <laughs> I I think that there's a few key areas that that we continue to see and I think a, a rising kind of group of, of skepticism or criticism uh, around uh, in the field Focusing on a few key areas, so I don't think this kind of hits everything, but I'll start, and Felix, you can let me know what I'm missing. 
I think the the first and and maybe one of the biggest kind of pieces that is is really key here is is the real focus on on the U.S. specifically and really Anglo-centric analysis, um, missing really a lot of uh, global uh, and comparative uh, kind of scope when it comes mm. to what we're looking at um, and who we're looking at it from. Uh, there's Definitely a clear uh, overemphasis of platforms and particularly a focus on specific platforms of Twitter and Facebook um, that really limits our understanding of, of where it manifests and how. Uh, and that includes, you know, missing traditional media formats as well. Mm. Um, and, and I think a real underemphasis of, of politics, of political culture and really important questions of identity and power. And I think where, where Felix noted earlier, where we kind of fall under that idea of, of critical disinformation studies is really where I think this point shines, is that uh, we hope that the field can can better and, and more frequently engage with questions of, of identity, inequality, and power in its analyses. No, I totally agree. And, I mean, what basically what Kisman so nicely illustrated is, I think that's basically the school of thought that comes from people like um, Rachel Kerr and Alice Marwick and Daniel Kreis, um, mm. your former supervisor, <laughs> um, who've really sort of pushed these issues when it comes to mm. the study of missing disinformation. Um, but more broadly, other problems I see, and that comes back to your first question, there is this persistence of fuzzy ontology, really, where um, just coming to terms with the terms and what we actually use um, to talk mm. about these issues is, is very heavily debated and to say there's no proper agreement um, mm. on what we should call these various phenomena we're trying to understand and study. So that's, that's definitely that's one big problem where still to this day we have not reached some sort of agreement. I don't think this is ever possible, but um, it would be helpful to have a sort of coherent set of terms that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, related to that is an often quite simplistic understanding of the effects of media, media technologies and journalistic mm-hmm. processes. So something that's still quite persistent in, in this space um, is, is what is known as the hyperdermic needle model, where basically this idea is that information, sort of you push it at someone and mm. it will have a strong direct effect. And we know from a ton of communication and cognitive research and lots of other fields contributing to this that this is not actually how it works. This is not how people consume information. This is not how messages have an right. effect. Um, and that's just, just it's still a big problem, um, both from, from sort of well, basically from people who sort of say that um, misinformation is a big problem and also from the people who say it doesn't have a big effect. So sort of this, this question of media effects is still very much um, sort of among my top issues where, where people um, mm. well, sort of have some misleading understanding of what, what happens. I completely agree. And, and I think one thing that that sort of reminds me of is, is I think a lot of this is driven by the fact that so much of what we understand of disinformation studies is really driven by the needs of grant funding mm. rather than As necessarily. so much research is, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Rather than a focus on, on things like, like theory building or, or even, you know, just empirical findings, building yeah. on empirical findings. Yes. And I think that's just, just as a final point to, to um, mm-hmm. add to what Kissinger just said. I think the, the sort of outsized impact that misinformation studies and disinformation studies has on the spheres of policy making, academia, journalism, um, is really problematic in some ways. It, it has led to, to really good initiatives. I mean, part of the reason why certain platforms have enacted policies against mis- and disinformation, against harmful information that partly comes out of this body of work. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's this risk of people jumping onto it because it somehow sounds sexy and interesting. And of course it's relevant, um, yeah. but it, it sort of risks that funding gets diverted, for instance, from, from, from other causes, always a problem. Yeah. And it also risks that funding and attention goes towards 
very flashy work, mm. which isn't necessarily good in terms of quality and, mm. and actual findings. Or maybe doesn't have the kind of depth and, you know, you kind of talked about this idea that there's other forms of media that you could look at, but obviously grant funding can be drawn towards the newest forms of media, the newest platforms, the most topical things, which is something I think we've probably all experienced in our work, whether or not it relates to misinformation or disinformation studies. It's so true. And, and I think a piece of that, too, is also just where the data is most available. Yeah. And, and I mean, in, in so much research, but but spe- specifically in this, I think there is a really uh, big issue of having to account for the fact that, you know, we can get most information from Twitter. Yes. And now in this particular <laughs> moment, we're really beginning to see that that's going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be quite a good segue into something that I wanted to pick up on. So you mentioned a power in this kind of the, the asymmetries that are that attached to what, what you study. How do you kind of reconcile with the tension, what, what I would imagine is the tension between quote-unquote traditional journalism was quite asymmetric, almost by design, right? You have the journalists, the muckrakers, the givers of truth, if you like, and then the receivers of the truth being the readers. And now, of course, we have a much more anarchic landscape for information, and some of that information is wrong, is mis- or disinformation. How do you approach questions like authenticity and expertise when you when you deal with this more uh, level playing field, if you like, of information online? This is such a great question, and I don't know, Felix, what you think on this. I think for me, there's there's one kind of thing I, I try to keep in mind with this, which is is that every form of of media, and particularly when we think about news media specifically, is sort of influenced by by mis and disinformation mm. in different ways. You know, avoiding the sort of Innocuous concept of of, uh, of misinformation mm. maybe yeah. as, as something that's that's not as much of a problem or at least doesn't have the same sort of intentionally detrimental effects. With disinformation, you know, news organizations, traditional on through digital native, as well as you know, just kind of everyday creators can either unintentionally or intentionally spread and amplify disinformation. Mm. Uh, and I think a big piece of this is that they're largely focused on on passing along the word of, of their key sources, which are elite actors. Mm-hmm. And and I think we can largely agree on the fact that most of the most problematic disinformation we're seeing nowadays comes from the top down. It's mm-hmm. coming from elite actors in many societies. And so I think that no matter what kind of format or, or method you're dealing with, you're going to run into problems of, of both intentional and unintentional spread. Um, and then I think on top of that, while there is there's great benefits that come with a, a sort of what you said, an even playing field, mm-hmm. the rise of sort of a, a much more fragmented and much more publicly available you know, set of information sources, it also means new players come into mm-hmm. the mix. And some of those players don't have the best intentions of the public in mind. Um, and some of those, we see this with the rise of you know things like the outrage industry, as uh, Sarah Sograj would say, mm-hmm. or... Uh, or just the rise of explicitly partisan media in many mm. societies where where this really just becomes a problem of, of, of active and intentional spread of disinformation on many different platforms. Yeah. No, I totally agree with what Kirsten said. I think the interesting thing there is really um, misinformation, disinformation, of course, has always existed. Yeah. It's not a new phenomenon. You yeah. can look at historical studies and it traces back all the way to the 1500s. It's had different names, but uh, yeah. Exactly. It sort of has come in different um, shapes and guises, but it's always been there, and it always will be there in some ways, as long as people consume and produce information. But I think what has happened, um, and what has been quite fundamental, is this reshaping of the public arena through digital media, suddenly yeah. where before you had these existing gatekeepers, it could be parties, it could be traditional uh, mass media, um, who were sort of gatekeeping what the public got to see and what sort of the issue of the day was. 
um, and therefore gatekeep to some extent what kind of misinformation or disinformation made it into that realm, sometimes um, keeping it out, sometimes willfully or um, unintentionally bringing it into this sphere. Mm-hmm. And that has really changed um, with the rise of both the internet and then social media um, these days, sort of private messaging, messaging platforms, because that allows certain actors to to some extent bypass these existing gatekeepers. I mean, Josh, Josh has written about this with um, Bashford and mm-hmm. others uh, when it comes to Trump, how he used Twitter to basically gatekeep, um, basically shoot the gatekeepers, yeah. get, his mes- get, get his messages, get the sort of elite disinformation that he was producing out into the public. And that has really made a big difference, and it sort of um, has, basically has led to a situation where we have to think differently about the role of these traditional gatekeepers, traditional media organisations, because they can be they can be contributors to the problem, but it also means they have a role in solving this, and mm-hmm. especially being critical, being very careful about what they decide to broadcast and what they decide to pass on, as Kirsten was saying. That's really important. I don't think that a lot of media organisations, they have become more aware of these problems. There's still a long way to go in various countries when it comes to um, making sure that certain kinds of information sort of don't get the, the wide audience that they don't deserve, mm. just by virtue of saying, oh, let's cover this because it's somehow interesting or relevant. Mm. So at the risk of maybe, um, you mentioned earlier that perhaps we have a bit too much um, reliance on talking about Twitter and Facebook, because obviously perhaps that's where the information is coming from. Maybe the elephant in the room. Um, I was going to say the Mastodon in the room. I was going to say the Elon in the room. Really. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All, about puns in this All of the jokes coming in. Um <laughs> Is what you know? What is the impact now of Twitter? Um, the decline, the death of Twitter, however you want to frame it, and what that contributes to misinformation studies, the future of, of misinformation studies from from your perspective. I've got two takes on this. <laughs> Great, um, I want to hear the hot takes. So, first hot take is, of course, it's problematic um, for researchers because Twitter was one of the platforms which were really helpful. Um, yes. They were quite willing to work with researchers and mm. um, they provide a lot of data access, which was and continues to be incredibly useful for various kinds of purposes. At the same time, that also has made us strongly dependent on Twitter and has led to a flu of studies which focus exclusively on Twitter data and to some extent the uncertainty around the future of Twitter that we see at the moment could potentially be a good thing, um, as weird as it sounds, because it finally sort of rams home the point that we shouldn't just write studies with Twitter data, which would yeah. actually broaden our data source, because Twitter is not representative of society. No. It's re- representative of elite, um, elites broadly construed, but it's, it's really not like the public. Um, and so that, I think that's the second take. It could actually be a good thing, because it sort of forces researchers like ourselves to look beyond Twitter, look at LinkedIn, look at Instagram, look at Telegram, look at TikTok, and basically all the other places, or mm. go back to like classic radio or television, which still is consumed by a lot of people. Mm. I couldn't agree more, and I think this opens up, hopefully, a, a broader conversation around uh, the access that we have to data on many of these platforms. Uh, and hopefully, yeah, I, I completely agree with Felix. It, I think this this will be an opportunity for scholars to really broaden their horizons and mm. move past Twitter uh, in ways that are that are healthy, both for <laughs> both for expanding just what we're researching in general, and also healthy for the ways that we're talking about what Twitter is and what it represents. Yeah. Yeah. To hone in on one subcategory of maybe um, Twitter's successes, um, we mentioned um, private messaging software, WhatsApp, Telegram, Signal, and so on. That, from the outside, to me, seems like really tough for data access, right? And maybe even for good reason, given end-to-end encryption and things like that. 
do you see any way forward in terms of how we might, if, if it's justifiable, how we might get in and see how dis and misinformation spread uh, through private messaging groups? I've seen a lot of really great work coming from scholars like Sarah Gwen, uh, Rachel Kuo, and a few others. That, Kieran Garimello as well. Yes, um, that, that engage with some of this. I think in part that are actually act- actively doing this research and finding mm-hmm. ways around it, mm-hmm. and also that are grappling with some of the sort of ethical yeah. implications of it uh, and how to do it well and how to do it responsibly. Um, I think you know there's there's going to continue to be not only a data access and, and, and privacy set of issues, mm-hmm. but also just the restrictions of, of what comes with this form of of really critical messaging. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to be studying these spaces, especially in diasporic communities, mm-hmm. uh, in historically marginalized communities. You know, this is a really critical space for us, and yet we also have to understand that that there are a lot of really clear uh, ethical concerns mm-hmm. around doing it. And and I think I, I don't have all the answers here, and I, and I wish that, that one of these scholars was here yeah. in the room with <laughs> us to answer those, but I do think that they are continuing to kind of find ways to do this. I think qualitative research is a really clear mm-hmm. kind of path forward here, mm-hmm. um, or at least mixed methods. I think that finding participants who are willing to sort of let you into their circles, that are willing to see you and watch, ha- have you watch them sort of engage with these things, may be a clear path forward in ways mm-hmm. that, that you know, computational research of scraping all of this is just not going to offer mm-hmm. that. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because I... I the last one you made was of course sort of work becoming more important again, um, and computational research sort of hmm. moving somewhat in the background. That's that's quite interesting because we've had now years of um, sort of unbridled and unfettered um, emphasis on computational social science for good reasons. I mean, hmm. computational social science is great; you can do so many fascinating things with that, but it, it fundamentally obscures to some extent the the fact that we ideally should be methods agnostic. Yeah. The methods we use should be driven by the questions we're trying to study yes. and by the contexts that um, present themselves to us. And increasingly in an environment where unfettered data access is no longer the case or has become much harder, you have to become more creative. Mm. And I hope and I think we will see a lot more creativity around um, finding new ways of studying these phenomena by using, as Kirsten was saying, mixed method approaches, by going back to... like bread and butter, sociological, qualitative work as people used to do it in the past because that gives you a different way of um, studying some of these facets. Um, but it's going to be hard. I mean, in, in some yeah. ways, excuse the language, it's going to suck for research. It's, <laughs> it's going to make our lives more difficult. And mm. um, it's not that you can simply scrape data or just download data at some but you have to sort of think creatively. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm nodding so much everything you're saying, because partly because I'm also a qualitative researcher, <laughs> partly Ooh. also because my work is like not Anglo-centric. And I think there is a real need to go to people and ask people and talk to people about, you know, if you're thinking about things like the impact of misinformation or how misinformation spreads in a... like a marginalized community you know these are we've historically excluded these people from being able to define how you know their own answers to these questions um so what kind of you know ways do you think that this kind of research could be redefined like what kind of either in terms of the methodology which you mentioned or in terms of you know you mentioned some platforms we like i'm really interested that you said linkedin because I think that LinkedIn is just so understudied, actually. <laughs> maybe I don't know why. Um, maybe it's a data point issue. I, I, I actually have no idea. But it seems to me that there are a lot of platforms and there are a lot of methods that we're not using or we're not even going to because it seems like no one's doing them. 
And we think, if no one's doing them, that means I shouldn't do them either. When, of course, the opposite is probably true. So, yeah, interested to hear your thoughts on any of on any of that about platforms or about methods that you'd like to see people use or work that you think, you know, what is the huge gap, I guess, that we're missing? I guess just, just briefly um, to clarify on the previous point, we're not um, <laughs> trying to sort of dunk on, on quantitative work. In no, 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 don't worry. It has its place. Um, you can study certain things with quant work, but you can't say the quant work and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, to your question, I... Well, it, re- it really sort of depends on, again, what you're trying to study. Um, so take, for instance, private messaging groups. Really hard, as, as Josh was saying, because yeah. it's, well, they are encrypted and for good reason. Um, so doing studies at scale in yeah. these groups is quite difficult. People have actually tried that. I think Kieran Gary Mellat used to be at MIT. I'm not sure if he's still there. Um, they have quite a fascinating study on um, basically WhatsApp groups in India mm. where they had such an elaborate research design where they yeah. sort of got access to lots of public uh, WhatsApp groups, um, asked for consent, and then basically because it was public groups, they sort of scraped um, the messages through quite um, some very intricate uh, computational social science approaches, and then used that to understand the spread of missing disinformation in these groups. And that was really fascinating to see. Um, but of course it also sort of presupposes a certain willingness of, of other scholars to accept this kind of work and mm-hmm. um, to go beyond their little boxes and say, oh, actually, um, yes, the sort of approach we had doesn't work for everything, so we sort of have to, to be more willing to accept other other ways of, of doing research. Uh, I think that's definitely, I mean, the methodological angle is definitely one way forward. I, I see, I guess I see my response being a little more thematic in nature, mm, though yeah, I, I completely I'd love to hear that, yeah. agree. Uh, with, with all of these points, um, and, and I don't know if I have particular, you know, uh, sort of locations of, of study in mind, because I, I think that, as Felix said, it's it's very important to I think target both your questions or your approach and your your methodology and your sources, you know, to fit the needs of of your questions that you're asking. Um, and, and so I think that there's uh, the sky's the limit, hopefully, <laughs> uh, in some ways. I think the two areas that I would really like to see work build here. And of course, this is because I do work in this space. And so I'm I'm very, very biased. Uh, I think questions of identity are going to be really, really critical uh, in the future of disinformation research. Um, And I think that there's there's kind of two pieces of this. There's first, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm particularly interested in sort of elite disinformation. And I think that while there's plenty of excellent work that's being done around this area. It's not to say that there's a lack of research on on how, you know, kind of these messages move from the top down. I do think a lot of times, largely because of our focus on social networks, our focus on computational work, I think we largely kind of miss, you know, where these ideas and and concepts are really stemming from. And a lot of times, you know, that's coming from political leaders. um, It's coming from major media actors, uh, maybe not mainstream media actors, but certainly alternative or partisan media um, and so I think there's a lot of these spaces that can be kind of more deeply explored and particularly from sort of a critical approach. And then I think the second piece is is just the uh, the absolutely critical role of a, a series of identities, you know, in how we understand, take in and sort of react to 
information, you know, in our daily lives. Um, I certainly see, you know, we, we know that in many countries, race and ethnicity is growing incre- increasingly important. Um, we know that gender has long been, you know, key as well as sexuality. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, increasingly going to be a lot of these kinds of questions in, in many societies. We're seeing religion or caste or, or social class become, you know, really critical to these conversations. And so there's so much opportunity here to explore this role of identity, what it means in, in how people interpret this information and how that how it kind of what it means to them, but also mm-hmm. the strategic aims of actors that are deploying it and the identities that they're really trying to uh, appeal to and entice mm-hmm. with this information. Mm-hmm. I think if, just a final point um, to add to what Kirsten uh, was so brilliantly saying. I, I think we have to sort of look back on our own field as well and sort of understand where we're coming from, what we actually want to happen, because um, it's one thing to talk about sort of descriptive study and empirical study of what we're seeing out there, uh, where misinformation comes from, how, for instance, identity influences, um, why people share it or consume it, um, how they receive it and and then act on it, uh, if they do. But also moving into the normative field, the question is, what do we actually want as misinformation, disinformation researchers? What what, what is our our normative position uh, on which we stand and what, in our view, should be done about all these things, if anything? Mm-hmm. Is it that we just say, well, mis- and disinformation is sort of part of the human condition in some ways, so maybe we shouldn't do anything? I mean, that's some, a position some people take, where they say, well, broadly, um, looking at this, um, there's still enough good information out there, and it's sort of a small part of the problem, and that's fine, so we shouldn't do all that much and just sort of let it continue. Mm. Um, fair enough. But there's also, of course, people who say, well... Um, it has outsized effect. Um, someone like Donald Trump spewing COVID misinformation or um, Jay Bolsonaro or another populist leader sort of doing that has direct harmful effects because people will believe that and then drink um, horse tranquil. <laughs> um, so what should we do about these things? And that's something where the field of mis- and disinformation really has to become sort of clear for itself what our, what's our position in this? What are we thinking about this? Yeah. Um, and I think that there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. That's so fascinating. I feel like, um, well, a couple of points there. I think one is that you mentioned Trump, so you said it, not me. Um, but it feels like in for a lot of people, maybe from a kind of citizen perspective, a lot of people think more about misinformation or that term becomes used a lot more around the period of an election um, we saw it in 2020, and now that we're at the well, just after the midterms, uh, we'll be seeing it again, I'm sure, in a couple of years. So, in 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 some ways, these kind of massive public events seem to drive the agenda, perhaps much more than you know ongoing issues of caste and religion, which aren't necessarily always driven by these huge events or um, that suck up a lot of. But like you know, we, we see it a lot in in all kinds of research spheres that you know events like. Yeah, elections or political movements kind of drive um, research studies and grant making and all that kind of thing. So in terms of thinking about, you know, big issues or like areas that you'd like to see more research done on and the kind of topics is you've, you know, you mentioned identity, Kirsten. Is there anything else, Felix, that you think will be should be a focus for the next few years? Um. I think Kirsten basically said mm. um, pretty much everything there is to say on the topic. I think identity, mm. ethnicity, mm. Um, race, certainly, especially when it comes to yeah. the US, but also other European countries. Um, one thing I find personally quite intriguing is broadly climate change, mm. misinformation or disinformation. 
um, because, well, it's sort of the biggest crisis humanity yeah. is facing at the moment, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically how people receive uh, consumer information about that topic um, is yeah. going to be crucial in, well, how we all are going to deal with this, um, yeah. which is not so much, well, it's, it's sort of a topic, it's not so much a sort of underlying driver or um, factor, but yeah. Maybe, maybe Kirsten has better thoughts on this than I do. No, I agree with you. I, I guess uh, this is maybe just a broader point than, than a specific kind of sort of area of focus, but I, I do think, hearkening to some of our earlier conversation, I think that uh, there's often a broad perception, I think largely because of the the very vast array of characters that are sort of involved with this, this vague idea of, of disinformation studies or dif- disinformation research. I think that often there's a focus, especially when we see conversations around policy, policy and legislation, of disinformation being sort of a security problem yes, and definitely. not necessarily a political problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we are going to increasingly have to grapple with that and, and, and kind of disentangle. The, I don't think that it's not a security problem. I think there are elements that can be solved in that manner. And there's very clearly elements that cannot, uh, you know, when we have actors that are intentionally lying on a regular basis to the public um, and they're, they, they have the platform and, and the power to be able to say what they want to say, whether it's true or not, whether it's harmful or not, we're going to have to engage with that in really important ways. And I think that uh, there is a certain level of uncomfortability that comes with having to uh, accept that institutions like academia, institutions like news organizations uh, are going to have to grapple with these questions mm. and they're going to have to have a shared sense of responsibility around how to deal with it moving forward. And mm. I think that will, yeah. I hope, come out in, in sort of what this research program looks yeah. like moving forward. And also just briefly speaking about the successes um, mis- and disinformation as a field has had, I think one positive um, thing is that we've moved the conversation from technological solutions um, yeah. to I don't want to say political solutions, but basically from the idea that you can somehow do away with misinformation, disinformation by having better algorithms that detect it and then flag it and we, gets We've moved beyond that discussion. It's actually, in, in, in a very positive way, I think we've moved beyond that discussion. We now talk about these things as fundamentally political problems, about mm-hmm. people um, having conflicts about worldviews, about certain issues, um, which you can't automate away so just tech <laughs> solutionism that has been very strongly there so the, the mid 2000s and then sort of later on around Brexit and US election 2016 you still see that and you still see that um, more strongly in some parts of the field than others but I think broadly that's, that's actually one of the positive things um, that has happened that the conversations have moved beyond that that's a good place to start a new research agenda and maybe a good place for us to end here as well on a relatively positive note. I could honestly talk for like another half an hour. Yeah. You guys are so <laughs> fascinating and such fluent, interesting insights. Yeah, but thanks so much for joining us. We will include links to your social platforms of choice. Uh, maybe <laughs> we used to just say Twitter, but... It to be determined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the redundancy in the system might be good. But yes, thanks so much for joining us. We will be back uh, for at least one more episode before the uh, yeah break, before the long Christmas break. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We learned so much. Uh, and to our listeners, we will see you soon. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Amazing. You didn't say hi to Jason Isaacs this time. Oh crap! <laughs> <I did. laughs> we might, hello to Jason. <laughs>